Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I wanted to make mention that it is really exciting that we've had a lot of listeners in some interesting places over the last week. So thank you to people all over the world who have been listening in the United States and Canada and in Sweden and Norway, Ireland, and the Netherlands and Switzerland. It is so exciting. So again, be in touch. Let us know what drives your interest in this topic and whether it is social, political, whether there is a cult near you, whether you are a former member or you're just interested in the subject. Can't wait to have you be in touch at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show. There are a couple of people who have signed up to be wonderful, wonderful, generous supporters of the show where you get actually a major perk. And so for 50 US dollars or more per month, you get to have a conversation with me, 45 minute, 50 minute, sort of the the regular counseling hour. And it's a conversation that is meant to be an opportunity for you to discuss what you'd like to discuss with me that has to do with this issue. Ask me questions that are relevant to this issue that speak to you in your life or your studies or your community or in the life of someone you care about. So please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and take advantage of that. And you also, as a Patreon supporter of any amount, get these wonderful bonus episodes. Today, we have Krista Lester Pitch. And I want to let you know that at the end of our conversation, we felt a bit unfinished, but we had run out of time. So she's going to be coming back on as a bonus episode, actually at the end of this same week, for those who are Patreon supporters. So if you want to hear the rest about what happened after she left, then go to Patreon and you can hear that and every other bonus episode. So for today, we have Krista Lester Pitch. She's a survivor of an offshoot of the infamous group known as The Way. She was born into and escaped the high-control religious group River Road Fellowship at the age of 23. Krista's main goal in sharing her story is to help people who might find themselves in similar situations as the ones she was in. She runs an Instagram page called The Survivor Experience with the hope that others going through similar situations of escaping control and abuse can know that they are not alone. She is an artist, a musician, and a mom. She resides in Bellingham, Washington with her husband, Lucas, her son, Mason, and their miniature labradoodle, Shiloh. Here is Krista now. so nice to have Krista with me today. And I am very happy that you're going to be talking about a particular group that 
is one of these groups that I remember learning about in when I first got started in this field in the early 90s, actually, because it's been around since mid-century, last century. And so, you know, it's it's one of these things where I tell people because of the work that I do, I have strange information in my head that is non-practical. And so I might not know how to change a tire all that well, but I know the name Victor Paul Weirwill. Like, okay, that is not, that's not typical for someone. And, you know, what do I do with all that? I store it away, but I am very happy to have you. So you can talk about this group, your experience, the fact that there are offshoots of groups that people really need to know about that, that a lot of these groups have tentacles you know, and and people are using the same theology or philosophy or control mechanisms in different places. And it might be called something else because I know there are a lot of subgroups in this group that are called other things. And so it's really good to find out the body of all the tentacles and where it all originated. And so I'm really happy to have you on the show. And I'd love you to take a moment to introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Krista Lester Pitch. I am a survivor of one of the subgroups from the Way International River Road Fellowship, which began in the early 90s, around the time I was born in 1992. I was raised in that group. The group itself relied heavily on the teachings of the Way International, and I was in that group until the age of 23. And when I escaped and Today is actually the eighth anniversary of the day that I got out. So that's a big deal for me. I'm sure. So thank you for spending your anniversary with us. Yeah. Eight years. Okay. So let's dig in. I know that there's a lot to talk about, and I'm sure there are some particular points that you want to make sure to make. I, of course, want to hear about your experience in the group, what prompted you to leave, and also as a girl and then becoming a woman in the group, what that was like and what you were taught about yourself. Maybe what we can do is start with a chronology. Like, So you say that you were raised in it, so your folks joined? Yes. So they were never a part of the Way International. The man who started River Road Fellowship, Victor Bernard, he was a part of the Way International and he separated himself from the Way in 1989, which was after Dr. Werewill passed away. There was a lot of turmoil within that church and it wasn't what he was looking for anymore. So he broke away and started his own church. He witnessed to my father in 1989. He actually worked with him. Uh, my dad was tasked with training him at the, the company he worked for. So that's how he got to know him. And then ultimately, my parents joined up about a year later in 1990. And that's how I got, got to be a part of it. I was born in 92. Right. So it's the life that you knew. It's all I knew. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering when you're talking about there having been turmoil in the church before, what do you know about that turmoil? What was it that was causing people to have dissension and split off? Well, that was before I was born. And there's a lot of narrative around what happened that I was told growing up. I learned a lot more 
from other podcasts about the way international and things that I've researched online. There is a ton online. It's a very, very popular cult. From what I understand, Dr. Werewolf, he handed over the presidency to L. Craig Martindale. And from what I understand, it, it just didn't go well. There was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of things Dr. Werewolf didn't agree with, uh, a lot of things other clergy didn't agree with. I can't really go into a lot of detail because I don't know a ton, but there was a lot of division within the clergy, within the top leadership of the way, specifically between Reverend Martindale and another man named Reverend Gear, Reverend Chris Gear, who wrote a book about the passing of Dr. Werewolf called The Passing of a Patriarch. And that kind of chronicled Dr. Werewolf's disappointment in the board of trustees, specifically Reverend Martindale, and how the ministry that he envisioned, Dr. Werewolf, didn't exist anymore. I know that there was a lot more surrounding that that was ever let on by the church. Allegations of sexual abuse, I don't know, some misappropriation of funds, things like that, but it was a mess and there was a, there was a lot of different things going on. Right. Okay. And the sexual abuse, that made the news, I remember. And since then, there have been more people coming forward and some books written, people talking about their own experiences, which is a very good thing. One of the things that I like when people write a book, do something, they can kind of define what was unhealthy. What about the group made it go awry, where there weren't safeguards, where you really were at people's mercy, or you were so conditioned to be submissive, and so a lot of things could happen to you? And I think that that's a good cautionary tale for anyone getting involved in a church or even a relationship of any sort. So here you were born into this group, and so I'm curious what it was like, sort of what's what was it? day in the life like for you as a child in this group? So when I was a little child, my life was fairly normal. We had home Bible fellowships in, in our home. My dad was, um, he was one of the fellowship coordinators. So I grew up with that for the first several years of my life. We lived in a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And then when I was about four, we moved up to the North Shore in Minnesota and lived there for a couple of years. It was around that time that Victor Bernard, who had begun River Road Fellowship, this splinter group, had purchased a camp in East Central Minnesota. And we would travel there for weekends and stuff. In 1999, he basically set a ultimatum that if we wanted to remain a part of the church, we needed to move closer. Ultimately, there were five different locations that most of the church lived on. And I lived on a number of different locations, but the majority of my life, I lived on one specific location and it was kind of like a commune. We were very separate. We were very different than other people. Things sort of progressed slowly. There became rules about how we could wear our hair and rules about makeup and rules about clothes. And we started making all of our own clothes at some, at one point. You know, women weren't allowed to wear jeans. We had animals, which was nice. I love animals. I grew up raising goats and chickens. We all had gardens at the different locations where we would raise vegetables and fruit for the winter. And we all worked together. We homeschooled. 
it was very isolated. There was a lot of activity surrounding the farm and also a lot of Bible fellowships. So usually there were two in the evening during the week, one on Sunday, and then occasionally they'd set up different classes that maybe would be run on like a Wednesday night or an off night from one of the standard fellowships. Okay. So in these kinds of stories, you can hear, well, I, I hear the conflict, the irony in this idyllic way of life with the gardens and the goats, etc. Then there's also the mention of there were rules about how you wore your hair and makeup, etc. Sounds like the rules that you're mentioning were for girls and for women. So here's this life that seems like it's sort of out in nature, off the grid, do your own thing, but not really do your own thing. (laughs) From the outside, this is why a lot of these groups sort of get away with it for a long time, because from the outside, it looks wonderful. And people, I think, don't realize about the amount of control. Were there the same amount of rules for boys and for men as there were for girls? I would say no. There were, I would say, some guidelines as to like what men should wear. And um, it was kind of like recommended that maybe they like don't have like buzz cuts. Maybe they wear their hair longer. It's like, it was, but it was like sort of copying what Victor did. So it wasn't like, you know, this is to preserve your holiness, which is basically what they told uh, for the women. Um, it was just more like, maybe this would be a better thing for you guys to do or something like that. So it was more of a recommendation versus a rule. So it sounds like there were suggestions, kind of guidelines for boys and for men, but I'm going to assume, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the girls, it was a rule more so like there was more of a an idea that you had to wear certain things. Yeah. And it was such a manipulation when I look back on it, because it was like, it was also a suggestion for the women, but also if we didn't do it, there was a problem. It'd be a problem and we'd get in trouble or we'd be talked to about like, how is your fellowship with God going essentially? So it was like, it's your choice, but, but really not. (laughs) Really? So not. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and so what was the consequence? So yes, you'd be talked to and basically questioned about your total belief system, right? Just a small little thing. Um, But were there, you know, what was it that you felt you were judged or looked down upon, or there was gossip about you? Like how, how deeply entrenched was the behavior modification for girls and, and for women? I would say it depended on the situation and who you were. For someone like me, it probably wouldn't have been that severe. I was, for the most part, a child and I wasn't like in a position of of being a popular person in the church. I was, you know, just one of the sheep, essentially. For somebody like my mom, it might have been a little bit more involved, a lot of meetings, working with her to restore her fellowship with God. <laughs> That's basically what it was. Or, you know, somebody like a, one of the clergy's wives might be like that. There was the maidens that were very much in the news. Uh, ramifications for them might be even more severe. They could end up, they, you know, they all lived at the shepherd's camp in a fourplex. They might actually be sent home to their parents because they aren't conforming. I know stuff like that did happen. I don't, you know, it's 
it's hard to say why, but they'd be sent home to live on their home location with their parents or with the leadership there. It really depended on who you were. I'm actually happy to hear that the kids were not treated with the same amount of punitive action as adults because that's sometimes the case in some of these groups that kids are really punished in a way that is absolutely not age appropriate, but is really to correct behavior at a very early age. I'm not saying that you weren't expected to do things like to sit probably for long stretches of time and having to concentrate, which is going to be hard. But I'm if we can sidestep for a moment and talk about the maidens, just so you can describe who they were, the life that they had and the role that they played. Yeah. So I was young when the maidens became a thing. It was in the year 2000. What happened was there were a few young women that were in their late teens, early 20s, already living at the Shepherd's Camp. There was a fourplex on that property and they lived in that fourplex. In the year 2000, Victor Bernard gave a teaching about the prophet Samuel and that Samuel's mother was so grateful that she was given this child that she sacrificed him to the priest and he served in the house of God for his life and he became a respected prophet and basically he used this story to justify bringing the rest of these young women in and he said that all the firstborn girls over the age of 12 were to be sacrificed to God and they were all going to move to the shepherd's camp. The youngest of them was 12 and the oldest was in her 20s, probably 22, 23 years old. The funny thing was, is that it didn't actually include all of the firstborn girls. There were a couple that were excluded and it was later kind of speculated that it was because of their body type, which is really sick. But there was no other real explanation for it. And so they lived at the camp and they were kind of the the forerunners of having to wear their hair back and having to wear modest dresses. And they became a symbol of like what you should aspire to be. As someone who was never a part of the maidens, it was, they were definitely almost untouchable in a sense. It was like an honor if you got to spend time with them or even like work in the kitchen with them. Like you should consider it an honor and a privilege. So that was my experience with the maidens. Obviously there was stuff far more sinister going on that came to light about 10 years ago um, with sexual abuse and everything that went along with that. And so that was who they were. And they were treated very harshly from what I understand by the people that were put in the position to care for them. There's also something about when you're in these groups, you want to be specially chosen for things, but chosen for what? You know, usually chosen to be on the hot seat, to be treated harshly, to be under this watchful eye, to be groomed more, to be violated. Then it can also breed a certain jealousy towards these people who were chosen. And they're probably thinking, I'm sorry I was chosen. You know, like, don't don't be jealous of me. I wish I didn't have this life. But they probably felt like they couldn't leave it. Is that right? Like, once you're a maiden, you're a maiden? From what I understand, obviously, 
it's not my story to tell, but from what Lindsay Tornambi, she is the one that has come out the most with her story, just why she also did. And from what they said, it was, you know, once you're a maiden, you're a maiden, you can leave, but you lose everything and you're looked down on by the church. And, you know, there's whispers of what did she do? And the embarrassment alone is enough to make you want to stay you know, from what has been told to me and everybody else was kind of in the same position. You know, you, if you left the church, you were cut off completely, completely excommunicated. We didn't even refer to you by your first name if we spoke about you. So to choose to leave the maidens, I mean, I saw it happen and Jess eventually left the maidens when she was in, in 2000 eight or 2009. Like we still talked to her. She, you know, we still loved her. She was still a part of the church, but it was always a little awkward. I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, and not having a first name. I mean, not being a person anymore, having an identity. And also when someone leaves, the question is, what did she do? Not what did he do? What did he do to her? I mean, I'm just noticing the gender of the person who's going to be getting criticized in this situation. Yeah, there were people who were sent away and it was always, what did they do? Sometimes it was talked about, sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was talked about in very vague terms. I remember one person was was excommunicated essentially and I don't know what the situation was, but we were told this person is not a friend of Jesus Christ and we are to beware of him. All That's all we were told. Wow. Wow. Right. So the person is demoted in your eyes and you're supposed to be afraid of this person, which is going to keep people away, which is going to add to when people leave that sense of isolation. Yes. This person later I found out was a whistleblower essentially of, you know, the, the abuse and control, not of necessarily of the maidens, but just overall. And the leadership in the church didn't want us listening to him because of obvious reasons. There are a lot of teachings in controlling groups, same thing with controlling partners, where you are always supposed to consider the source of the information and the source is somehow tainted or up to something or evil so that you don't have to pay attention to what they say. It loses all credibility. It's a it's a very common tactic. I guess it's good for people to be reminded when they hear that someone has left something or left a relationship, left a group, and suddenly they're evil. And you didn't think of them that way before know that that's because they have some truth to tell that people don't want you to be paying attention to. Back to your experience. I would love to hear more about just your experience growing up and what are some of the important messages you want to be able to share with us today? Yeah. So my experience growing up, I was actually kind of in a unique position growing up in the church. My dad was, and anybody who was a part of River Road Fellowship knows my dad. His name was Mike Lester. He was the fixer of everything. If there was a special project, my dad was involved. If there was out-of-town errands to run, my dad was the one who did them. And one of the things my dad didn't subscribe to was that the women should stay isolated. And that was an extremely different approach. And nobody really was willing to step on his toes with that one. My dad was also very close to Victor in a way that not many people were. At the same time, he also didn't know about the abuse taking place. If he had, life would have been very different for me. I can tell you that. So I was a little bit more exposed, I would say, than most 
girls in the church to the outside because my dad would take me with him on out-of-town errands a lot. So I got to experience the outside world in a way that a lot of people in the church didn't. Obviously, it was still very uncomfortable for me because obviously I looked very different. I wore long dresses. I had super long hair. I looked like, you know, I belonged in an FLDS church, kind of. Right, slash Little House on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie, yeah. (laughs) And I think that having that exposure lent to my ability to notice when things were wrong, when something was off. So I knew that we were different. I knew that we were really like out of the ordinary and that nobody lived like us. But at the same time, we subscribed to this idea that we were the chosen flock of Christ and that we we were the members of the true faith and we were super special because of it. And so we just did what was asked of us. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack about my upbringing. I was 11 years old. My family owned a house on one of the properties and I lived there from 2000 until 2003. In 2003, my mom got very sick with a, um, an, an illness known as sarcoidosis and it affected her lungs very, very bad. She was given this idea that it was a spiritual illness. And in January, and I, I might get a little teared up talking about this because it's it's a it's it's a big part of my my story and it's one of the one of the branches where my PTSD comes from, but I'm in therapy for it. Everything's you know under control. But in January of 2003, my mom decided that I was no longer allowed to have any of my Little House on the Prairie books, which I was obsessed with growing up. She decided that it was that she was going to burn them. One of the reasons is because for some weird reason, Little House on the Prairie was not sanctioned by the church as like allowed reading. And it had something to do with somebody having this idea that these people were Freemasons. I'm not really sure where that came from, but that was the story. And so my mom burned my whole set of Little House on the Prairie books in our wood stove. And I was furious and I was so upset. And so something about sarcoidosis is that it can come and go. So randomly one day, like if it affects your eyes, randomly one day you'll be able to see again. Or if it affects your lungs, randomly one day you can breathe again. It just so happened that day, my mom's sarcoidosis let up and she could breathe again. Oh, so she connect, uh, right. Yeah. That's the false correlation. So to connect the those, dots. Right. Victor yes. told her that it was because she burned the books. So then of course I grew up thinking it was my, my fault that my mom was sick. I mean, my, my mom and I have talked about this since obviously we know it now that it's not about the books. She knows now that it's not about the books. You know, she focused really hard on getting better. And she thinks, you know, a lot of it was more like the power of positive thinking and also just the science of the disease. And it was just a coincidence. It has nothing to do with the books. Um, During this time, my mom was sick. She was working very closely with Victor to get better. And because she was told it was like a spiritual disease, she was having meetings with him and trying to get to the bottom of what her spiritual malady was. That was January. February, I was actually sent to live with another family for a few weeks because apparently I had a problem too because I had these books. 
I had to be retrained, I guess. But they sent me to live there for a few weeks. And then I went back home in August of 2003. My family was moved to another location. We moved into a house and then the people who lived in that house moved into our house. So we switched houses for a year. And this property was ran by a couple that you don't hear about in the news, but should should have been talked about in the news. Their names were Randy and Pam Rourke. Pam Rourke was a very, very, very close, close friend of Victor. Any of the maidens would corroborate this. She was very instrumental in facilitating their abuse. So anyways, they ran this location. They were very like hardcore, like almost militaristic about the way that they ran their area. And they were all about the control. And Victor told my mom that she was there to learn from Pam and that she was to listen to Pam and do whatever Pam told her to do. And it was hands down the worst year of my life. I was 11, then turned 12 years old. I was obviously still a little girl. I have always been a little bit heavier. I've always struggled with my weight. It's a genetic thing. My dad dealt with it too. Like, it's just how I am. Um, I was starved, essentially. I was put on a very, very restrictive diet of 600 calories a day or less at the age of 11 and 12. We were homeschooled. And the way that we did it was it wasn't always in our own home. Sometimes different moms would just have a bunch of the kids at their house to school them. And I was told that all the other girls that I got schooled with got to have a midday snack, but I didn't get to have a midday snack. So I had to just keep doing school while all these other little girls ate in front of me. I, you know, I was put on scales. Also, I'm not always the most or- clean and organized person. Still to this day, I'm not. My husband will tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I was like that when I was a kid. Most 11-year-olds are messy. I was subjected to daily room checks. Someone would come to my room every single day and check it to make sure that it was clean. And if it wasn't, there was no secret about it. Let's put it that way. If I was out playing with my friends, somebody would come out and like, or yell out the door and be like, Krista, your room needs to be cleaned. And it was super embarrassing. You know, it was not, it was not kind or thoughtful if, you know. Wow. They were starving. I was, yeah. I started to believe that it was normal to go to bed hungry. Nobody would do this to me if it wasn't normal. That was basically my logic. Going to bed hungry must just be normal. And there was nothing that my mom or dad could do about it. They were under the control as much as as I was. My dad, who was the only person who could have done anything for it, he was was he was never home. They they like had him so busy that some there were whole days that I would never see him. And so, and I, I'm pretty sure that was intentional. Because that was the only time in my life that I would go whole days without seeing my dad. Oh, no. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I'm, I'm so sorry you you went through that. I just want to say something about that before you, you'll remember where you were about to go, because I don't want to interrupt the flow of what you're saying. Okay. So first, being publicly shamed. I mean, when you are any age, but especially preteen and teen, that is one of the worst things to happen and that you're going to be called out in front of your peers or in front of the adults. Okay. Number one, number two, being starved while you're developing when you're supposed to be getting a period, when you are having your body, you know, doing its thing where you need more nutrition. And there are a lot of people whose 
weight will fluctuate during that time because I think it's the body's way of saying we need a little more now because we're we're busy. We're, we're busy trying to do things and we need more fuel for it. And I think just having this sense that you didn't get what everyone else was getting, but everyone else could get right in front of you. And so you had to watch people eating while you were hungry. I'm sure it also affected your sleep. It's very hard to sleep or fall asleep when you are hungry and to wake up hungry and to be disoriented. And it's also hard to learn when you can't focus. That's why a lot of schools now in areas where they can get it together to do it, have breakfast at school or hot meal for the kids who don't have so that they can function, they can grow and they can learn. It's very hard when your parents are in a situation where they can't intervene on your behalf and they're going along with something that feels torturous to you because you want them to be your protector, but the system is going to keep them from being able to do that for you. And that's very hard. That's hard for the child. It's even in retrospect, hard for the parent. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was so much more packed into that year. Obviously this was on the heels of my mom getting, getting better. Um, so there was continued manipulation and I would say she was being groomed as well. Obviously there's a lot of stuff out there, um, about Victor having had affairs with married women as well. My dad was under the impression that my mom was being groomed to do just that never happened to her. And it was because my dad put his foot down, went to Victor and said, Victor, that's my wife. And Victor himself actually came to our house and just lambasted my father in front of all of us. And thankfully, he never touched my mom, but there were consequences for that. There were absolutely consequences. And, and I remember it clearly. And I, I didn't know why he came to, to our house and went off on my dad. I do now. So that was another thing that was going on during that time. And I think that was another another reason that they were keeping my dad so busy and keeping him away from the house. Ooh, I, I like your dad. <laughs> he he passed away a few years ago, but I liked him too. He was my favorite person in the world. Right. He yeah. stood up. He yeah. he took the harder road a couple of times, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. he was willing to for his family. Wow. Okay. So we lived there from beginning of August 2003 to beginning of August 2004. Then we moved back to our house that we owned. And I lived there until we moved out to Washington in 2009. So life, I mean, for the most part for me, went back to fairly normal or as normal as it had been before. There were some changes. Obviously, as you got older, there was more attention from upper leadership as far as you know, training you to become an adult and... There was a program. So there was the Maidens. We talked about the Maidens. Victor also started a program called the Shepherd's Corps, which he modeled after the Way Corps, which is a part of the Way International, um, which was a program to train leadership. However, the Shepherd's Corps was far less structured. In fact, it had basically no structure. And in 2003, it was opened up for anyone who was over the age of 12. So 12 and up. I was a little too young at the time. I wasn't going to be 12 until the next February. So it was just missed the cutoff for that particular group. But as time went on, I was kind of grafted in. And then the rest of the kids, as they kind of became of age, they were 
grafted into this. I, I don't really want to call it a program because it wasn't a program. It was just a name and it was a way to basically keep us under control. Shepherd's Corps, there was a certain method or way of living that we were expected to have. And it was never really necessarily enforced. But if we weren't abiding by the rules, it was a problem. So something like along the lines of we do something that was, you know, out of the box of of the doctrine or whatever, that's not something Shepherd's Corps would do. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? It's just a name. It's something that is applied to us when we turn 12 or 13 years old. And, you know, we were given classes, like biblical research classes. When I was 17, 16, actually 16, I was given a biblical research paper to complete, which was a big deal. And that was another thing that was kind of given to us as we grew up was a, a research paper to complete. And that was another thing is that it really wasn't a research paper. We had to write this thing out under the doctrine that was taught to us. It wasn't like we could say anything that was out of the box. And there was certain things in my research paper, like I was given guidelines of what to research. And I literally, there were some parts that I just went to Victor and, and was like, what do I write? And he told me what to write. And interesting. So the the things that you went to him to get guidance on why why was that in those moments were you just confused by things that didn't come together mm-hmm. or uh, and he so, knew everything so. he was the, the apostle there were certain things that because we were given like an outline of what to research and different ideas and there were certain things that didn't make sense didn't add up didn't seem to come together for me and i just i requested a meeting with him which was super common he was actually fairly accessible which is not always the case with cult leaders but I requested a meeting with him, sat down and was like, I'm having trouble with this. Tell me what to write. And so I just did. He told me and then I just wrote about it. I didn't really even do any further research. And that was fine. Well, right. I mean, it makes perfect sense that you would do that because if he he's the answer guy, then you would go to him. Anything also that didn't quite come together, you were probably not so comfortable with that feeling. And you needed to have that resolved probably just physiologically in you. Like, let me go to the person who will have the answer. I'll be happy. And I'll also know that it'll be considered right in his eyes because I've already dealt with when things don't feel right in his eyes and and how he comes down hard on that. And so, yeah, I think by default, you just needed to get him his answer. If he were a true teacher and wanted you to do research, he would say, it's not for me to answer these questions. It's for you to research and for me to learn from what you found out. Exactly. Exactly. And as time has gone on and I've looked back on that experience, I've realized that some of the research is mine. I found some of the stuff on my own and put some things together, but some of it very much isn't. That time frame for me was like 2008. Then in 2009, that was when the church essentially started to to fracture. And there was no explanation given other than a bunch of the clergy and upper leadership got very, very, very angry at the church and at Victor. And my dad was kind of in the thick of it, but he didn't really say much because Victor was his friend. And they had a friendship that wasn't super common with other other people in the church. It was just a very simple, more like a brotherhood type of, of friendship. At 
one point, and I found this out later, Victor did admit to my dad that he had been having affairs with married women, but my dad kept that to himself for a lot of years, but he never told my dad anything about the abuse with the younger women. And I know that he didn't because like I said, things would have been different. It would have been very, very different if, if he would have known that. So it was 2009 that top leadership started leaving no real explanation. Victor started encouraging the quote unquote shepherd's court to start witnessing, which was something that we never did. We were always an isolated group. We were always kind of told that this isn't an outreach ministry. We had very few people come in between the years 1996 and 2009. It was very, very isolated group. And there were people from the way ministry who would kind of trickle in and come and be a part of it, but very few new people. And the people who were new that would come generally didn't stay very long. He encouraged us to start witnessing, and that was super awkward because we didn't know how to do that. So later in 2009, after things started falling apart, we obviously, he told us to start witnessing. We really weren't because we didn't know how. Victor took off, and he didn't tell anybody where he was going. I think my dad knew where he was going because he had met with him right before he left but he never told us. And the reason why was because he had been accused of sleeping with the maidens. And it hadn't come out in the news yet, but he had been accused of it. And it was after that, that the church kind of split. And that is how my family ended up in Bellingham with a bunch of the other members of the church. Some ended up in Spokane. And that was the group out in Spokane that Randy and Pam Rook took charge of in Spokane. And that was where the maidens were as well. Some stayed in Minnesota, and then some of the church went out to Pennsylvania. So I was in Bellingham. I moved out here in 2009. Right before we moved, my dad was made a trustee of River Road Fellowship, and he was the trustee that essentially shut it down. He was the one who came in and said, we need to shut this down. And so they did. But the church was still very, 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 very functional. We were still following Victor's teachings. When my family moved out to Bellingham, we actually ended up crossing paths with Victor. He was in Spokane with two of the maidens. And that was kind of his home base until he eventually absconded to Brazil which because he was a fugitive. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So we moved out to Bellingham with some other members of the church. I lived out here with my family from 2009 until the end, the beginning of 2013. During that time, I graduated high school, which I did through a virtual high school versus just being homeschooled. I also went to a high school program at the local community college to do some classes. So I started having more exposure on my own to what the real world looked like. We also lived in town versus living on a isolated compound. I started, you know, wanting to make friends. I was a very friendly person. I was a very nice person. People liked me and I wasn't just going to turn them away because I was a part of this cult. I wanted to be accommodating. I wanted to be kind and I wanted to make friends. And so I started having friends that weren't a part of the church. I couldn't share my real life with them, obviously. And that became a huge problem for 
the leadership out here in Bellingham, and also even my parents. There's this biblical phrase that you may have heard before called being unequally yoked. Oh, yeah. Please describe that. It's interesting. These are interesting terms. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So basically what it means to be unequally yoked is to have friendships or camaraderie with people who are not believers of the same thing that you are a believer of. So a Christian being married to a non-Christian would be unequally yoked. And in my case, being a Christian, even just a person who was a part of this cult, being a friend of somebody who was a person who was not a part of this cult, regardless of their, their belief system or their religion, that was being unequally yoked in their eyes. Ultimately, I was asked to leave. I was essentially excommunicated. And I was 19 at the time. It was in 2011. I was 19. And my dad actually came home and said that he had spoken with the the leader of this the group out here. Um, and it would be best for me to not go to fellowships anymore. So that lasted for a few months. I was eventually allowed back, but it was still, again, like going back to what we were talking about before, very awkward. Nobody treated me quite the same after that. In the end of 2012, so this, you know, was maybe like a year long period that this was going on. One of the young men who lived in Spokane, which at this point was a fully functioning cult of itself. He came out to Bellingham and basically shared about, well, what we called it, and this was a pretty common thing, what we called it was sharing your deliverance, basically being where you weren't doing so well spiritually, according to the church, and then basically got fixed and now we're on the right side of the tracks with God. And so then you get to go around and you get to share about your deliverance. But really what it was, what looking back is a story of how you were manipulated into being under the control of the church again. So a lot of the younger people, mostly young men, but some young women, that's where they would end up. They'd end up in Spokane for their quote unquote deliverance. And it was after that sharing from that young man that I was invited, and I use that term very loosely, to move to Spokane. The reason I use the term loosely is because I knew if I said no, it would be a problem. I was given a choice, but not really. (laughs) So beginning of 2013, it was actually my mom's birthday, January 7th. My parents moved me out there and I lived with one family for a couple months. And then They kind of moved me around a little bit to different families. Ultimately, I ended up living with Randy and Pam Rourke. Pam had kind of been an integral part of my life. She's She was kind of, she would call me on the phone, which is really uncommon. It was really uncommon in the church for people who weren't in your like immediate circle to call you on the phone and chat. But she would call me on the phone and talk to me and over the years and we'd have, have conversations. And so ultimately... I moved in with them. It was an experience, let me tell you, because it brought me right back to my time when I was 11, 12 years old. And so it was, so this, at this point was like spring of 2013. They eventually had like a meeting with me where they sort of got into my 
like tried to get into my personal life and they wanted me to change my phone number so that I wouldn't have any contact with my old friends from Bellingham from like college and stuff. I never did. Uh, at that point, at least I never did. They wanted to know if, if I had a Facebook page because Facebook was not allowed in the church. I did. Obviously I said I didn't. They also told me that I wasn't allowed to have any electronics in my room. So when I came home from work or wherever, I had to leave my cell phone out. There was like a drawer that we all put our cell phones in, in the laundry room. I had to leave it out there, had to stay out in the living room. It was shortly after that, that the news broke about Victor having molested those girls. And I knew something about it. I just knew that they weren't going to be honest with me about it. It was not necessarily those terms. But I ended up buying a tablet, like a secret tablet, and I kept it like hidden in my room and I would take it with me wherever I went so that if they looked through my room, they couldn't find it. That's how I kept up on like the news of what was going on. And so then I was told I wasn't allowed to have my bedroom door closed unless I was sleeping. And they also started to get really like on top of my diet again. One thing I I remember about that time was it was around Thanksgiving. Um, This is backing up a little bit around Thanksgiving and I had time off from work. So I wanted to go home and visit my family. It was also during around that time that a couple of the young men in Bellingham had decided to move on with their lives and leave the church. So I thought it would be a good idea for me to come over to Bellingham as somebody who used to live here as somebody who had, you know, or was receiving quote unquote deliverance to kind of show them that leaving wasn't the end all show this, this group that, you know, what, what's possible. I really believed that that was what I should do, but I also really missed my family and I really, really, really wanted to see them. And I believed that it was God's will. I really, truly believed it was God's will. And I talked with one person about it and they're like, that sounds good. Talk to Randy and Pam. And so I went home and I sat down with them in their, their office. And I was like, here's the thing. I would like to go to, to Bellingham over Thanksgiving break. I have some time off. I think that's that it's important that I go. So that's what I'm going to do. And it got really, really, really quiet. And Pam goes, suddenly she goes, what makes you think that you could come to that decision on your own? And I was like, well, I didn't. I believe that it's God's will for me. And so that's what I'm going to do. And she's like, that's not how it works, Krista. She said, yes, God works in us, but you still have to check with your leadership to make sure that it's actually God and not just your own desires. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. I, I let it go. I ended up getting to go to Bellingham over Thanksgiving break. We are all supposed to have the ability to walk with God and talk with God. And we we were always taught that we have this ability. You know, we believed that in the gift of Holy Spirit and that that was God's way of speaking to us and through us. And apparently we still needed to have confirmation from somebody who was higher up the ladder than us. So that was the kind of things that was happening. And then, like I said, the news about the sexual abuse came out in the it came out and I was following it secretly because I wanted to know what was going on. Um, 
during that time, we actually moved. I moved with them into another house with some other people. So it was, there was more, even more people. They started to get really interested in my finances at that time. And also my diet again, they put me on a three-week liver cleanse twice in a row because the first time I did it, I didn't lose enough weight. So they put me on it again. When they finally were able to get me to show them my finances, it came out that I had this tablet and was you know, subscribing to certain things. Everything was super innocent, but not allowed by the church. And so then I was required to, to submit my bank statements to them every month. That was around that time that I decided that it was time for me to move on. More stuff was coming out in the news about Victor. The arrest warrant came out. And then eventually, ultimately, he was arrested in Brazil. But they, of course, were telling us that it was all lies, all lies, all lies. And there was one man in the church in that particular area during that time, also a very good friend of my dad's. My dad was the best man in his wedding. And he was like an uncle to me. And he called out Pam and her daughter, who was also top leadership at that point. She had been raised up in the church and had become top leadership. He called them out on the control. And he was essentially sent away. I knew that if if he was out, there was something really wrong. And I started to make a plan to leave. I connected a checking account to my car loan to funnel money into so that it looked like I was just paying extra on my car when they looked at my bank statements. I started building a wardrobe in the trunk of my car so that if I needed to leave without my clothes, I could. And I wrote a note just in case I needed to leave in the middle of the night. And I was getting to the point where I was going to do that. One of the things that we didn't touch on, but it's pretty common in cult situation scenarios that when you leave, you lose everything. And you're told like, you're going to lose everything. And one of the things that we were taught was that if we didn't stay, and it was called in the sufferings, because to suffer with him is to reign with him, what the Bible says, that it wasn't that we weren't going to go to heaven. But if we stayed faithful and did all the right things, we'd have like special heaven that we'd get to go to. And the better we did, the more special our heaven was going to be. And then it got to the point where it was like, well, yes, if you are saved, you'll have eternal life. But if you don't stay faithful, maybe you won't even go to heaven. You might actually just stay on earth. And so that kept me afraid to, to leave. And I remember driving in my car one day And I remember exactly where I was in Spokane too. And I suddenly realized that I didn't care anymore. I did not care. I was like, I don't care if I don't get to go to extra special heaven. I don't care if I get to have my own planet. Whatever I get as far as eternal life, it can't possibly be worse than this. Whatever punishment I receive, it cannot be worse than this. So, anyways, I ended up meeting somebody that I worked with. He offered to let me stay with him after I told him what was going on. And I was called to a meeting with my bishop and with Randy and Pam and basically told them that I was I was done. I was leaving. And I left that night. Then it was just a process of rebuilding. 
I stayed in Spokane for about nine months before moving back to Bellingham because my dad was sick and I was going to be here for him. And he didn't understand, even though he had everything, you know, everything he had seen, he still didn't understand. And then a couple years after everything kind of came to light, he ended up going to Spokane and talking with Victor's now ex-wife. He talked with her and she told him what I went through when I lived there because she saw it. And he came home and he sat down with me and he said, I want you to know that I believe you. And I am so sorry for everything that you went through. At that point, I knew that I had his support. I had my family's support and I started to rebuild. I do hope that you'll be able to come back and continue because I know there is more and there's more to your experience. Yes. So, but for now, thank you for telling me about your experiences. And and also it's interesting. It happens a lot that there's sort of a cult within a cult and your living experience twice felt probably like you had entered this other restrictive environment within a restrictive environment. So sorry that you went through that twice. I'm very happy that they were called out. I mean, it sounds like along the way too, there were people who were willing to risk kind of everything to come forward and to say what they knew was true. And also the fact that you got to hear your dad say, I believe you and I'm sorry. Two things that a lot of people never get to hear. And it's very healing. I count myself incredibly fortunate that I got that because I know that that is an extremely rare experience for somebody who's been through what I went through, especially having family members who are a part of a cult too. Like they usually lose them forever. And so I feel incredibly lucky to have gotten that from him and then to have had four good years with him until he passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for what you shared today. To be continued. But of course, I, I'm so glad that you are free to tell your story. And yes, there because the organization is still around, you know, there are going to be people who are going to decide to tell others not to listen to you and not to believe what you're saying. And so if anyone is hearing that, you know, that I, I think it's good for them to know why why information is being kept from them. And that what is suspicious in those scenarios is often the person telling the information, but what should be suspicious is why people are being kept from listening to them. Anyway, it is a pleasure to talk to you. And I'll sort of, in my head, I'm picturing dot, dot, dot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we'll pick this up another time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. thing before you go. Thank you so much to Krista. As I mentioned before, she had so much more that was left to talk about that is actually very moving. We have since recorded the next part of her conversation with me. It's going to be available for the Patreon supporters. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination, become a supporter for an amount that you feel that you can comfortably afford to help support the show. And you'll be able to hear the rest 
of the conversation with Krista and also all the other bonus episodes that are made specifically for you, the supporters. One of the things that Krista talked about, not only was, you know, it about how she was treated and body shamed and made to live in a way that was so uncomfortable physically, emotionally, spiritually. There's so much language in the things that she talks about that is just so disturbing hearing about the the young women being called maidens and just the terminology often is enough to kind of do me in here when I think, oh, that just does not sound okay. So many people within very controlled environments have to lie. It's not like I think lying is a good thing. But I think for some people, what they're saying in those moments is, I'm not willing to have to live a life that is so controlled. I'm not willing to live a life that is so limited, where I really am treated like I can't be trusted. I'm treating I'm treated like I'm a felon or I'm going to be a felon. And ironically, a lot of people who really are good, good people who just want some breathing room, just want to be able to take their hands and press the walls out farther away from them just to have room to exist and be themselves, find themselves lying by omission or commission, lying outright or lying by leaving things out. It's a situation that doesn't necessarily change people's character. It's not like they wanted to be lying. It's not like they wanted to have to live a life where they had to lie in order to have basic freedoms and basic privacy, basic rights. But it is a situation that goes back to ones that we talk a lot about here, that if you are in an abnormal situation, sometimes your behavior becomes abnormal in response to it. And so people will then sometimes be caught for lying in these organizations or family units or whatever it is, and be told, aha, this just means you can't be trusted. And then they leave sometimes thinking this is a mark on their character and this is somehow defining them. But come to find out a lot of the time, that once they knew that they were in a safe place, once they knew suddenly they were in the world outside that uh, was going to allow them to do something that they weren't allowed to do within, let's say, the church or the cult, and once they were involved in the world in a way where they could be more fully themselves and not have to worry about being judged or damned, they didn't feel the motivation to need to lie anymore. Because again, that's not their nature. But it is a core part of nature to want freedom. It's a core part of our nature to know also that sometimes we want to keep some things to ourselves. We don't want to have to disclose everything, like is the expectation and the demand in cultic groups and in controlling relationships and family systems. Within these organizations, secrets are the things that really should be called just having privacy. It's given a negative connotation, though. It's given the negative connotation of keeping a secret. But really, you should have the right to make a call that goes undocumented, to have a thought that you don't have to disclose, to be able to have a feeling 
that you don't have to report. And it should be that these things can exist in your own mind, in your own psyche, in your own body, but not within a controlling system. So people will very often need to find ways to keep information to themselves. They'll very often need to find ways to be able to access life, to be able to see also if they can trust themselves. If you're taught from a young age, especially as a girl, that somehow you can't trust yourself and you can't be trusted out there in the world, it is human nature to want to know if that's true, to want to test it out. So there are many people I know who would go out, if they could, and find themselves somewhere where they never expected to be, maybe a restaurant by themselves or a bar by themselves, or just walking down the street unaccompanied, or walking down the street wearing pants instead of a long skirt, just to see if that meant that they somehow couldn't be trusted. And they would often come back to their relationship, their family, their cult, realizing that nothing bad happened. They didn't have the intention to do something wrong. They were able to resist temptation as well. And it gave them this sense of confidence about the way they could be in the world outside, which they wouldn't have known had they not tried. And a lot of them had to say that they were going to the supermarket or they were going to the library or they were just going for a walk without saying where they were really going and why they were doing it. And then they would leave the cult often feeling like they're bad people for having done it. In a situation where you really are kind of pushed against the wall, you're going to push back in certain ways because that's what we do sometimes just to see if we can have room to breathe. I so appreciate what Krista has shared, and I look forward to having you hear the rest of her talk. She needed to come from a place of being really mistreated to regain a sense of confidence. And even just this notion that her life could be a happy one. And I'm so happy that that's what she has now. Good luck to you, Krista. Good to talk to you. Talk to you all next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.